Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Advertising has had a major effect on how we view our bodies and on our individual self-image. The history of how this advertising has come to affect American girls as they pass through Menarche and adolescence is presented in a book called The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. This book describes the historical roots of acute societal and psychological pressures that girls feel today. It shows how the female adolescent experience has changed in the past 100 years. The author, Professor Joan Jacobs Brumberg, teaches history and women's studies at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. In this program, from the archives of Radio Curious, and the first of a two-part series with Professor Brumberg, I spoke with her by phone and asked her what drew her to write The Body Project. Well, I had a number of motivations. Uh, um, One is simply that having written a book an earlier book called Fasting Girls, A History of Anorexia Nervosa, um, which honestly won a number of awards and took me across the country on the lecture circuit, particularly to um, groups of women and also uh, the mental health professions, uh, the eating disorders world. Uh, After almost every talk that I gave, somebody would come up to me and say some version of the following thing. I wish I had anorexia nervosa for just a little while. In other words, they wanted to be more slim. That's right. And, and I, I thought it was kind of a bad joke. I certainly understood it as a woman. Um, and I began to think about the ways in which female adolescence had changed over time. This was an interest of mine. I have always been interested in age and gender as categories of historical analysis. And so... I thought that I might focus my attention not on the pathological, but on the normative. In other words, what was going on for girls? How had girlhood changed? Uh, What did it mean to come of age in a female body today versus in my own youth and then move back into the 19th century? You know, what was girlhood like? And the fact that I have two granddaughters probably is not um, irrelevant here. How old are they? Uh, They're seven and four. And uh, had a son. Uh, These are his children. Uh, They live in my hometown. I'm watching them grow up. Uh, And I am interested in the social and cultural forces that are shaping their uh, development. And um, I had some real concerns for their adolescence. When you collected the material for your book, How were you able to do it in a way that um, you felt was an honest revelation of the speakers or of uh, your informants? Well, um, you know, when I started thinking about this as a historical problem, and remember I'm a historian, not a psychologist, you know, I I thought what kinds of documents are left that would give me a clue to girls in past time, and I think their personal diaries emerged as the best way, the way to get closest to the adolescent girl in past time. It's interesting, uh, just from a cultural perspective, that 
diaries are a girl thing in America. They've been a girl thing since the 19th century. As opposed to a boy thing. As opposed to a boy thing, right? There's some, certainly there's some teenage boys today who journal. <laughs> uh, they go to alternative schools where they're taking creative writing classes. But generally the personal diary, you know, with the little lock and key is connected to girls. And that started in the 1830s without a lock and key. The lock and key is a, is a, a phenomenon of the post-World War II world. Um, but I thought that this was a great way to get close to girls. Now, there is a class bias in my sample, if you want to use social science terms. Sure. Um, and that is that, uh, by and large, girl diarists are middle class. They, they may be African-American, they may be Jewish, they may be Italian-American, uh, but they're middle class. And that's because you don't get girls who are poor or girls in the working class. General, generally, they generally don't have the privacy, they don't have the, the time, they don't have the means, they don't have the parental encouragement. Did they have the literacy? Well, you know, American women have been literate. In, in very high numbers, really, since the early 19th century. And it's at exactly the point when most American women are getting at least common school educations. This would be in the 18, uh, starting in the 1820s and 1830s, that diaries become such a popular genre. But why did it become a popular genre for girls and not boys? Well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think some of it has to do with the um, I think some of the reasons are cultural and some are psychological, so let's start with the cultural ones first. I think some of it has to do with the evangelical religious revivals that were very, very important in 19th century America, particularly in New England and in upstate New York and moving into Ohio. Um, some people talk about that as the second great awakening. Um, and in those revivals, girls were the primary converts more girls were converted than boys in the Second Great Awakening, and they were mostly teenagers between the ages of 16 and into their early 20s. And those girls, as part of their religious experience, began to keep journals or diaries about their spiritual progress. And they're a rich source of information about life in the uh, pre, the antebellum period, the period before the Civil War. Uh, at the same time, a lot of them were getting educated now so that they were reading and writing. Uh, there was a kind of a, a flowering of, of women's literature at that time, mostly magazine literature. So all of that comes together. And we also know that, um, you know, girls uh, at an early age uh, sit down and focus better than little boys. They're into pen and paper and pencil activities. They, they're, they're more likely to sit and color uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and write little stories. And their stories, interestingly enough, we know this from psychological studies, are more likely to be told in the I the pronoun or me, while boys will tell stories in the third person, which I think is interesting. So I think there are ways in which the diary is linked to girlhood in ways that are both psychological and cultural. Why is it, uh, going back to something you mentioned about being more uh, girls were converted in the evangelical revivals than boys? Mm -hmm. Why? Well, I think uh, there's a very um, practical reason. Um, I think that the emotionality of um, 
the revival itself uh, often um, kind of worked better uh, for young girls. There was a lot of pressure on girls. It was very important to be a religious woman, to be a pious woman. It was part of uh, correct or good femininity in the 19th century in ways that it wasn't for men. Uh, you know, it was a credential uh, to be converted in, in both a, a social way and also in a real professional way. In the social way, you know, it said she's a good woman. Uh, and a woman who was converted in the evangelical revival, a teenager who's converted, was then allowed full privileges as an adult woman in the church. And it also meant, in many cases, that your, your local minister would then say, um, Susan Smith has been converted in the revivals here. She has been active in the Sabbath school movement. She has been a teacher for us with young children, successful in making converts. So I recommend her to you uh, in the neighboring town as a teacher for your public school. I see. So it was economic, social, and potential. Absolutely. Uh and it was a way of, of, you know, kind of solidifying an identity, too. It was energizing. It meant that you had a mission, you know, in your life. Uh, you were now an evangelical teacher. And, uh, you know, it meant that you went into the public schools uh, with a sense not only that you had to teach reading and writing, but that you also were working for the conversion of souls. But it, w would it also have um, a, a background as being a reference for a future marriage when this oh, young sure. woman... Sure, it would have helped. Absolutely. That's what I mean when I say it was a character credential as well as an economic credential. So when you learned about these people, um, the young women, you collected their diaries? I collected those diaries, and some of those diaries, by the way, are in my first book, How did uh, you... which was called Mission for Life. Uh, the Judson family in American evangelical religious culture. It was about a family and, and uh, their involvement in evangelical activities, particularly missionary activities in the 19th century. And then, you know, at the end of the 19th century, there are lots of girls' diaries um, from the high school experience. In other words, middle-class girls in the 1890s going to high school. One of my favorite diaries in that genre appears in the book um, and the diary was written by Lou Henry. Lou Henry grew up in Pasadena, California. She later married Herbert Hoover. That diary is just extremely rich in information about um, some of the basic things that happened to girls in the late 19th century. How was it that you were able to get your hands on these different diaries and, and read them? Well, um, this is what historians do. I mean, I, I use standard bibliographic finding aids in libraries, and so, uh, you know, I went to libraries all over the country. I went to the Hoover Presidential Library uh, in Iowa um, and, um, you know, worked there in the archives. Uh, so I, you know, I used materials that were in institutional libraries and historical societies and museums and th things like that. But I also went out and aggressively solicited diaries. Whenever I was uh, touring around the country and giving lectures about the history of anorexia nervosa, I would mention that I was interested in diary literature. And invariably, a woman or two or three would come up to me afterwards and say, 
I have an adolescent diary, but you probably don't want it. It's so, and you can fill in the blank, they'd say, it's so boring, it's so stupid, I'm embarrassed by it, um, it's so ordinary, you wouldn't be interested in it. And yep. I would respond by saying that's exactly why I'm interested in it. Because it's the it's first person account. Pattern. Um, and then one other thing that I did that was kind of interesting, I put in the, the New York Times book review, um, you know, one of those authors' queries in 1982, and I was just inundated. I never um, colonized those diaries. I never took them away from people. I would um, ask them questions about the diary, uh, have them send me some photocopied pages uh, before I actually ever, you know, put my own little hand, grubby hands on it. Mm -hmm. And then I would work with it and return it, and often I would make a recommendation that the diary be given uh, to a local historical society or repository where it would be preserved, because a lot of people have these, uh, but they're not being preserved um, in ways that, um, you know, are are going to ensure that they survive. Well, Joan, I'd like to ask you to read from a couple of portions of those diaries, but first I want to say that my guest this week is Professor Joan Jacobs Brumberg, who teaches at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and we're talking about her recent book called The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. Could you uh, read a portion of a sure. few of those diaries? Let me uh, just explain that these are two New Year's resolutions, two contrasting New Year's resolutions. And New Year's resolutions are always interesting for historians because, of course, what you get is an opportunity to see um, a girl's agenda, in effect, in effect, for the coming year, what she wants to have happen. And this one, written in 1892, begins, Resolved not to talk about myself or feelings, to think before speaking, to work seriously, to be self-restrained in conversation and actions, not to let my thoughts wander, to be dignified, interest myself more in others. Now to me, uh, that quotation um, really puts the emphasis on character and how outward behavior is a reflection of inner strength. That's very characteristic of girls' diaries in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, something begins to happen, and by the end of the 20th century, you know, where we are now, you get something like this. This was written in 1982 uh, by a Stuyvesant High School student. That's one of these uh, um, selective high schools in New York City. I will try to make myself better in any way I possibly can. With the help of my budget and babysitting money, I will lose weight, get new lenses, already got new haircut, good makeup, new clothes, and accessories. To me, uh, this quotation uh, is characteristic of the diaries that I read. It shows this enormous faith in visual presentation of the self, uh, an emphasis on the outside of the body, and also uh, the need to consume, to make purchases in order to be better or good. So these two contrasting uh, quotations really uh, capture uh, the essential historical change that I describe in my book, which is a move from good works to good looks. 
And that was brought about by a multitude of factors as the country moved westward and other people came from other parts of the world and many other factors. Can you identify and describe some of those factors? Well, I certainly can, uh, but it, you know, it's hard for me to even prioritize them. Um, I would say that these, this internal change that I've described, from good works to good looks, uh, came about as a result of a, a number of external changes in religion, family life, uh, but let me just give you some more concrete examples. Let's focus in on something like technology. Um, look at the history of opportunities for self-scrutiny, our ability to look at ourselves. Um, if you look at something like the history of mirrors, um, you see that in the 19th century, uh, the only people who had looking glasses were wealthy people. By the end of the 19th century, there are little handheld mirrors available for girls to look at their faces. Those are available through the Sears and Roebuck catalog. By the 1920s, uh, women and girls are all using compacts. They're looking at themselves even more intensely on the street. Uh, that's something that would not have happened 75 years before. In fact, a woman who pulled out a mirror and looked at herself on the street and wore makeup would have been you know, a woman of the night, <laughs> a ruined girl. Uh, that was not something that nice women did. Um, I think that there's a lot of, of uh, there are many ways in which technology has increased the opportunity for self-scrutiny. In addition to mirrors, think about things like the modern bathroom. Uh, you put together electric lights, running water, and mirrors, and that site that place, the bathroom, because becomes very important for girls and their body project, uh, more and more self-scrutiny. Uh, let's introduce also the bathroom scale, um, which becomes uh, more common uh, as the 20th century proceeds. In the 1920s, my diaries reveal that girls who got into swimming for the first time could not, were not weighing themselves at home. They were going out to weigh themselves at a drugstore, uh, or they were weigh weighing themselves at a university or college gymnasium. Another kind of technological uh, impact uh, or force that, that has consequence for girls and their level of self-scrutiny would be the movies. Uh, if you go to the movies every week and you see the same actress appearing sometimes as an Indian princess, the next week as a cowgirl, you begin to realize how malleable self-image is. And in the 20s, the diaries begin to have girls talking about image. I want to have a certain image. Uh, Yvonne Blue, a girl growing up in the 1920s, writes about herself. I'd throw in standard sizing as another technological force uh, that, that uh, impacts on our experience as women. When clothing was made at home by a mother or uh, by yourself or your aunt or your older sister or your seamstress, uh, there was not as much emphasis on standardizing the body. So those are, that's just one set of the kinds of influences that I talk about in the book. Well, a standardization of sizing uh, seems to me would have much more of a commercial or mercantile effect 
because someone could go and say my size is. Absolutely. A and, lot of the forces that I'm describing are related to uh, commercial or uh, capitalist impulses. Yet when we get into sizing um, and current sizing, which um, as I understand it, the sizes are different for different uh, si different kinds of clothing. Absolutely. The numbers are smaller. Part, part, actually, the more you pay for your clothes, the smaller your size. Talk about that. <laughs> why, why is that? Well, I, I, I can't explain that. I mean, I'm not, uh, my, I don't know that much about the, the fashion industry, but I know that both anecdotally and also from uh, some things that I have read. There, there really is no such thing as standard sizing. And uh, it, the, the standard that we have, as I understand it, um, was developed in the 1930s for a body type that uh, is not the same as today. I mean, our bodies have changed over time, and that's an important theme in my book, um, that as much as we like to think that the, that the biology of female adolescence is static, in fact, it has changed. Um, but to return to standard sizing, I think it's so interesting that we have a polyglot, multicultural nation, and yet most women experience some angst over this issue of fitting into things. And I think the dressing room experience may be one of the most painful things that most women in America undergo. Almost everybody, whether they're tall or thin or, or, or heavy or, or slim, can has some angst around not fitting into things that she wants to fit into. Because of the commercialization saying you must fit into this and you your body must appear a certain way with this outer garment? Yeah, we have some very, very powerful uh, cultural icons of beauty right now and they tend to be very tall and very thin and they don't reflect the diversity of female body types in this culture. Do you have a, a thought, um, I don't want to lose what you just said, but do you have a thought on why this um, force of self-scrutiny is so much stronger for women than it is for men? Because I think women are taught from a very early age that their power is in their appearance. I think that's the message of, you know, even the most recent Disney movies for girls, Pocahontas, for example. You know, I mean, it's lovely that the Pocahontas movie shows a Native American young woman. I think that's an improvement, <laughs> you know, a young woman of color. But look at her body type. Look at the way she fluffs her hair. Look at how she wins the heart of John Smith. You know, we learn early as girls that appearance is the source of power. And I think that's, uh, if I have a political agenda in this book, it is to help people think about how that has been constructed over time, that it isn't that recent. That it has to do with a lot of different social and cultural forces across the 19th and the 20th century, but that it's probably something that we ought to try to tamp down as we raise another generation of girls for the 21st century. I want to say again that I'm speaking with Joan Jacobs Brumberg, the author of The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. Joan, can you tell us how this has been constructed over time? Well, uh, as I just indicated, um, uh, technology has been a very important uh, player. 
I'm, yeah. I'm asking perhaps more in terms of, uh, is, do you see it as an economic or a political uh, forethought? By well, it certainly is an economic issue. And uh, in addition to the technological uh, inputs that I described, I think if you take something like the way in which we parent, I'm talking particularly about middle-class parenting. Um, as middle-class parents across the 19th into the 20th century, have had rising expectations and ideals for the physical perfection of their children. They have made more and more and new and many new investments in the health care of their children. For example, something like pimples. I mean, I do a social history of acne in my book. Um, you know, a pimple is not always a pimple. In some, I mean, it, 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 its cultural meaning changes. Um, if you look at something like the rise of dermatology, um, you, you see that there are, you know, more and more parents who are working hard and spending money to 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 take care of their daughter's pimples. Uh, there are parallel stories about orthodonture, about um, contact lenses, about weight loss camps. Uh, and now, I'm afraid, uh, particularly in Southern California, uh, there are parallel, there's a parallel story about cosmetic surgery for teenagers. Um, improved hygiene um, around uh, many of the body issues of young women, men aren't first periods and menstruation, uh, also um, has been affected uh, by commercial interests and by the new power of American medicine. So, you know, and then there's also the issue of the way in which niche marketing develops uh, for teenagers in the post-World War II period. Before World War II, um, skin care products, for example, were aimed at women and girls generally. But after World War II, the, the hard sell is really at teenagers and, and, and kind of escalating their normal self-consciousness about their skin and, and playing on it to uh, sell them more and more skin care pro uh, products. So commercialization of the teenage girl's body and also medicalization of the uh, parenting process, in other words, more doctor input, those things are very important, are important parts of the story of why there is so much pressure on girls' bodies at the end of the 20th century. Well, Joan Jacobs Brumberg, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests. And that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? An interesting book that I've read lately? <laughs> I guess the last book that I read in entirety that I loved was a Maeve Vinci book. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, blank, I'm blanking on the title, but it was on, a, on the plane, and it was a, I know what it was. It was called The Glass Lake. By Maeve Vinci? Vinci. She's an Irish writer. Joan Jacobs Brumberg, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. Joan Jacobs Brumberg is the author of The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. The book that she recommends is The Grass Link by Mae Vinci. 
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.